You're tuned to KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, K201HR 88.1 FM in Fort Bragg. We also stream live on the web at kzyx.org. And altogether, this is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. Good evening. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. With me online are my co-host, Dr. Robert Spies. And our guest for tonight, we have a great topic that I think a lot of you are going to be really interested in because it has a, a real local angle and is an example of a really fascinating development in evolutionary history. Uh, Bob, would you like to introduce tonight's guest and tell us a little about his background? I'll be happy to. I'm really pleased to have uh, our guest tonight, uh, Dr. Jack Dunbar. Uh, Dr. Dunbar is Curator of Ornithology and Mammalogy at the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco and uh, has an uh, intense interest in uh, ecology and evolution of birds uh, and some mammals, it turns out. And uh, he specialized in molecular ecology, and I'm, I'm sure he'll explain that what that really is to us, uh, for those of you who haven't heard that term. And uh, I've been fascinated, been reading a little bit about his background on his website, and is working in the Namibian Desert on elephant shrews, and then uh, working on poisonous birds in New Guinea. And But uh, tonight, he's closer to home, uh, going to be talking to us about uh, barred owls and uh, spotted owls and their interactions uh, in our local forests. So, Jack, welcome to our program. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We're really pleased to have you. Uh, we normally ask our our guests uh, about their background a, a little bit and particularly how they got interested in what they do. And uh, so if you could fill us in a little bit. Yeah, sure. So I'm a I'm a curator of birds and mammals at the California Academy of Sciences. And, and there's a lot of different things packed into that. But I'm basically a researcher, pretty much as you would find at a university, except for that we're not a degree granting institution. But we do support PhD students and, um, and master's students and undergraduate students who, you know, are getting their degrees from nearby universities. And, um, and we have a collection of about 100,000 bird specimens and about 10,000 eggs and nests. And, you know, most folks know about the public facing side of the museum, but they don't realize that there's a whole, you know, research arm behind the scenes and that we have these huge collections. And I like to think of the collection as it's kind of like a, um, a natural history library. And the specimens that are in them are the most complete and tangible um, record and permanent record of life on earth. And, and many of the specimens that we have in the collection were collected you know, a hundred years ago or more and, you know, right up to today. And, you know, one of our jobs is to continue collecting specimens and documenting natural history and studying natural history. So, so that's kind of what I'm doing now. Having that position has allowed me to, to offer some, some help and, and some expertise that a lot of my other colleagues studying owls don't have. And so that's been, that's been a really fun thing um, that I've been able to contribute to all this, this owl work. Oh, great. How long have you been to the California Academy and where did you uh, do your uh, studies? Um, well, let's see. I've been at the Cal Academy since 2003 and I did my undergraduate at uh, Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee and my PhD at University of Chicago and, and I did a postdoc at Smithsonian and I was at Smithsonian for 
six, six and a half years or so before coming out to be the, the chair of ornithology and mammalogy at the California Academy of Sciences. So I've been, so I've worked a few different places and, and I'm actually trained as a molecular geneticist. So most of the work that I do um, or has done is more like molecular evolution um, type stuff. But, you know, and we've been able to do a bit of, of, of evolutionary work with the owls too. So I always try and squeeze a little bit of, of that in. So that's kind of my that's kind of my background, and um, I never thought that I was you know when I was growing up, I, a lot of folks don't realize that that this is a career option. I certainly didn't. I thought you know most people that went into biology, I thought were were doctors, and so I was pre med for a while, and then I took a class as an undergraduate that took us down to Baja California in Mexico, where we tooled around the desert and learned all about you know birds and marine mammals and and all of the plants and insects and how they adapted to the desert. And, and that was when I first realized that people actually get paid to do that kind of work. And, and I said, yeah, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. And so I've been very fortunate that I've been able to um, keep gainfully employed ever since then doing biology work all, all around the world. But, uh, but I love working in California and I've, I've really enjoyed being out in San Francisco and at the Academy and um, in these great forests that we have along the coast here. You have in the Academy of Sciences, if, as I understand it, a specimen of a Williamson sapsucker that until about 10 years ago was the only recorded observation of that bird in Mendocino County. And, Very cool. Yeah, and David Jensen and I then saw one on a bird walk. So, and Very that, nice. How did we get that specimen? Do you know the history of that? Uh, it, supposedly, it dates back to the early years of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. 1906 or something is really, really old specimen. I don't even know that. That's just what I've been told. So sometime I'll have to look that up. Yeah. And in fact, all of our catalog data is online. So you can go to the Cal Academy Ornithological Collection and search by genus, species, locality, and find out exactly what we have in the collection from your area or whatever species you're interested in, which is really cool. And, you know, most of the bird specimens are now online so that you can get all that information just by doing a, a search online. So. Nice. By the time this show airs, uh, we'll have a link to that on our website, which is ecologyhour.wordpress.com. Uh, must have been amazing to get all that data online. It uh, couldn't have been, a, could have been a time-consuming, uh, <laughs> uh, laborious uh, bit of work to get all that. That's a lot of data. It is a lot of data, and luckily that was all done before I arrived at the academy. Yep. Well, we should get into the uh, the topic for tonight, Doctor Dumbacher. I, I, I really was keen. I was recommended, uh, given your name, by multiple sources when I was asking people around here who should I talk to uh, to find out the, to get someone on the air to tell the story of the barred owl, and your name kept coming up. So I'm really glad that you're we were able to make this happen. Do you want to just kind of give us a little background on the barred owl, what it is, where it's from, what its life history is like? Sure, I'll, I'll do my best. I'm I'm by far not, you know, the most knowledgeable about barred owls. There's so many folks that work out here in the forests on spotted owls and barred owls that know way more than me. Um, but I am happy to talk about it. And I, and I actually feel that what's happening in our forest right now is so fascinating. It's just a really great story that I think everyone should be aware of. And I, and I also think that we're at this turning point um, and the barred owl and the spotted owl is just a great example. But 
but the decisions that are going to be made in the next couple of years about the future of our Western owls, you know, are really important decisions. And I, and I think they're really challenging us to think outside the box a little bit. And so I, so I think it's a great topic. And I think it's, it's one that we should all spend a little bit of time thinking about. So, um, so the barred owl, so, it, so most of your listeners are probably familiar with the Northern Spotted Owl. And it's been listed as a threatened species by the, the Federal Endangered Species Act since 1990. And, and you know, it's, it's affected a lot of businesses up and down the coast here, all the way up to Washington and, and even into British Columbia. And so, you know, that's had, that's had major, you know, major impact. And so everyone's familiar with the, with the Northern Spotted Owl. But one of the things that, that's very interesting is that there's this other species of owl, and it's called the, the barred owl or Strix varia. And it's in the same genus as the northern spotted owl. So they're pretty close relatives. It's slightly bigger. And, in, and instead of being spotted, it's striped, which is why it's called the barred owl. And it's, it's a little bit more aggressive. It breeds a little bit more frequently. And, and its habitat requirements are a little bit more generalistic. And they're they're basically the east coast version of you know our spotted owl out here. So I grew up with with barred owls in the east coast, and it's one of my favorite species. And it's the great forest owl. It's the one that you hear hooting, um, and it, it has a it has a great call that many of you will recognize. You know, whereas the the northern spotted owl has a four note hoot, and it sort of goes, ooh, 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 ooh. The, the barred owl has an eight note hoot. And in the, in the East, we like to say, it says, who cooks for you, who cooks for you? Or in the South, they say, who cooks for you all? And, um, and it's called, um, sounds something like this. And so, um, so you can, you can, you know, even hear that they, that they sound fairly similar and that they're, they're close relatives and, and doing things in the forest that are, that, you know, are pretty similar. And um, and so what's what happened was is they 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 started moving west, and um, by the 1930s or so they started hitting the western United States on the other side of the of the Rocky Mountains. By 1943 or so, the first the first few individuals actually overlapped with northern spotted owls in British Columbia and northern Washington, and by 1965 they hit the west coast. Um, around um, in Washington, around Seattle, in the, in the Olympic Peninsula, and then from there they started moving south down the coast. So they got to the Oregon border around 1974. They were in Northern California by 1981. Some say 1979 or so, um, and they made it all the way to Marin County, which is the southern extent of the Northern Spotted Owl. Um, around 2002, I think the very first ones were seen. Although some people have 2003 as the as the first records, and so they're they're slowly, you know, they've been slowly moving into the to the habitat. And then the folks who have have seen them, you know, in their study areas and and where they've been studying the the northern spotted owls, they you know they noticed them there. There were definitely a few individuals, but then there came a time at which there was really a critical mass. And then they just started growing exponentially. And, and, you know, so you would see, you know, a, a map of a study area and there'd be like, you know, one, one barred owl and then two barred owls and then one barred owl. And then next year, you know, two barred owls and the next year, three barred owls. And then, 
three barred owls again. And then all of a sudden there's eight barred owls and then there's 12 barred owls and then there's 20 barred owls. And, it, and the numbers just, you know, go up very, very quickly once they hit that phase. And um, in around 2004, there was a lawsuit that was, that was brought. And um, under the Endangered Species Act, in fact, under the act, I think it's supposed to be every five years, every species that's listed is supposed to be reviewed to determine whether or not they still belong on the Endangered Species Act or if they've been recovered and they can be taken off or if, you know, they're not doing well and they need to, you know, reevaluate what they're doing um, to take care of the species. And in 2004, in fact, I think it was 2003, there was a lawsuit, a couple of lawsuits that were brought um, to, to evaluate the Northern Spotted Owl. And part of the, part of the, the reasoning was that, you know, we, we've had the Northwest Forest Plan for, you know, 13 years now, and the owls are still in decline. So whatever we're doing, it's not working. And, um, and another issue that was brought up was that there were some genetic studies uh, that suggested that the Northern Spotted Owl was not genetically distinct from the California Spotted Owl and therefore should be downlisted since the California Spotted Owl seemed to be doing better. And, um, and so I got pulled into that as a geneticist to review the data, to review the molecular data and write up the chapter on the molecular data. And, and a couple of my colleagues, Craig Moritz from UC Berkeley were on that panel and, and Rob Fleischer from Smithsonian Institution was on that panel. And, um, and the interesting thing was that, you know, there was, I can't remember how many, 10, 15 biologists and they were, you know, experts of all sorts. So there were ecologists and demographers and, and, uh, and geneticists and lots of other folks. And, and we each had to write our own section, but we each had to read and critique and, and help polish the other sections too. And so during that review, uh, several of the biologists had pointed out that, you know, that there, there's this barred owl and the barred owl's on the habitat, but they don't really know whether it's, it's affecting the Northern spotted owl. But some of them were coming back with this data that showed that and it was this really clear graph and it just looked like an X because as barred owls were going up, spotted owls were going down. And in areas where the barred owls came a little bit later, the X came a little bit later. So it definitely looked like the two species were correlated. Um, but what we didn't know, in fact, this was one of the, the criticisms that many of the scientists had. They said, well, there's this correlation, but we don't know the causation. So we don't know whether the, the, Barred owl is just moving into the empty spaces as the as the spotted owl disappears, and that might even be a good thing because then at least we have you know a western forest owl on the habitat doing what western forest owls do. Um, the other possibility is that the barred owls are actually directly knocking out the northern spotted owls, and that would be very alarming. And so you know. So after that meeting, they, you know, everyone agreed that this is something that needed to be studied. Now, the interesting thing was, is that they all said that, the, you know, the critical experiments to be able to tell the causation would be to do a removal experiment. And this is very typical in, in ecological studies where you just remove one species and then you, you see how the ecosystem rearranges itself after it's gone. So basically, you would remove the barred owls from the habitat and then see if the, if the spotted owls are able to do better in their absence. And they also all said, well, this is a shame because you know, both species are protected under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and they're raptors and, you know, and they're all protected. So you, you can't do that kind of experiment. 
and um and me being the museum guy who you know in the back of the room i sort of raised my hand and i said you know guys i have a permit each and i can collect any species you know as long as it's not endangered and as long as i'm not collecting too many that it would harm them i can collect them and document them in the collection so that we have a record of what's here and i said you know to my knowledge we don't have any records or at least not many and and none that have been systematically collected of barred owls in the west and i think it would be a really important thing for us to document this and to have some specimens in the museum and i said if you agree i would be more than happy to do the collecting where you want me to do it so that you can study how the how the spotted owls react and you know everyone sort of scratched their their head and said oh, you know really you, this can be done and i said well you know and they were actually you know permits that were given to me by us fish and wildlife service and california department of fish and game so many of the people in the room you know were you know understand this and and were actually the ones who issued those permits so you know we didn't end up using that permit to to start the work but it but it you know suggested that it could be done and we applied for permits um shortly after that and i think the first removals happened in 2005 maybe it was 2006 but it was around that time and um and and we actually were able to help do some of those removals and the first ones were done in the siskiyou range just north of mount shasta and we removed i think it was about eight to ten owls and then the wairika endangered species office had some raptor biologists on staff who were going to um, follow up and, and see how the the northern spotted owls responded um, but it became a real political hot potato for mm-hmm. fish and wildlife service and you know um and for a variety of really interesting reasons to me because because you know i was new to all of this to the to the northern spotted owl and all the politics of owls in the western united states and um and and i was told then you know like they they couldn't continue the studies and continue to support the studies but they wanted me to work with a with a timber biologist from humboldt county named lowell diller and he worked for green diamond timber and um and i was initially very you know concerned skeptical i didn't you know know if there were conflicts of interest but everyone assured me that lowell is an amazing biologist and he really cares about the owls and no matter what he finds he's gonna he's gonna publish the work and lowell was an amazing guy to work with and um so we moved the project to the coast and um and he had actually you know cordoned off his land so that you know some of them were treatment areas where there would be removals and some of them were control areas where there would be no removals so that he could carefully compare how spotted owls um you know did in both the other thing that people were beginning to think about is like, you know, is this even possible? Can you even remove, you know, these are difficult birds to see. And so, you know, it took a lot of work to, to sort of figure out how can you call in um, barred owls and, and can you even remove them and how much time does it take? And so Lowell and I put together some really simple experiments to just, you know, measure how much time it takes and to figured out what the effort was and we published a, a short little paper on that and um and then and you know shortly after that and, and maybe after a year or two of those first removals um lowell actually took that work over and he got his own permits or i, I think maybe perhaps at first we we added him to our permits so that he could do the work on his own and didn't rely on me 
in my time, you know, to be able to come up and help with them. Um, but it was it was really amazing work. He did it. He did such a great job, and he had, his land is is part of these larger demographic studies where they where they were studying, you know, how the northern spotted owls are doing. And and after several years of those removals, the only populations of northern spotted owls in the in the demographic study areas that were doing well were the ones where the barred owls were removed on Green Diamond Timberland, and so. So that was able to show that one, it's not that hard to remove barred owls. They can be done. And one thing that we've been able to show in the history of the United States is that you can wipe out top predators if you want to. Not that we <laughs> should, but it can be done. And we've, we've yeah. done that across the land pretty effectively. Um, so, it's, so one, that it can be done. And, and two, that it, it does look like, um, you know, there's that, that, the barred owl is having a direct impact on on spotted owls. So around one, the same time, oh, go ahead. Oh yeah, I just had uh, one question there. I, I remember reading some of. I think uh, was was it Doctor Diller? Did he have a PhD? I, I don't know. I I remember reading a couple of articles that he published uh, about some of the early work there. And one of the interesting things that caught my attention was that in areas where barred owls moved in the spotted owls became very difficult to survey they wouldn't respond to calls anymore right and then when he when he first started removing barred owls there was a spotted that was you know most of these birds the spotted owls have been so intensively studied that they knew all the individuals and one of them had been missing for i think he said five years and then as soon as they took the barred owl out of the territory that owl uh, showed up almost immediately the the very next season when they surveyed. So it had been there all along for several years, but had had gone silent. They weren't able right. to actually detect it with a survey. That's right. Is and that... it wasn't even the next season. It was like the next week because I I think it was a full week before they went back to resurvey the areas after the removals. And the next time they were back, um, the the northern spotted owl was back on the territory singing and defending the territory. So that was great news because, you know, because it was feared that you go out and you do your surveys. And if you don't hear them, you know, multiple times during the year and multiple years, you just assume they're gone, right? That they've either moved to another place or that they've been killed. And so one of the things that was really encouraging was that some of those owls were still on the landscape. And when you remove the barred owls, they pop back up again and they start to, yeah. and, and they'll re-nest and they'll, you know, start to reproduce again. So, th so that was really encouraging. Um, and, you know, there were, there were some folks doing removals up in Canada too. And at, at first they were like, well, what's the point? There are no more spotted owls up here. Even if we clear off the, the habitat, you know, there's, there hasn't been any herd for a long time. But, you know, they too found that when you remove the barred owls, that there's a few individuals that are still left and they, and they do pop back up. So it, so it can make a difference. That was another key bit of information. And the question that that brings up in my mind, though, is uh, can you even survey for spotted owls anymore? I mean, do we do we know? We, it seems to me like we've lost the ability to even track their population. Well, you may be very right about that. Wow. And I think, you know, we don't know the answer to that. Um, and there, there are folks out there who are, who are trying a lot of different techniques. And one of them, they're using these things called ARUs or automated recording units. And they, they can put them out on a landscape for an entire season. 
and it it just records all the sound you know 24 7 or just during the night or however you program them and and the hope is is that you know you might catch them calling a few times during the entire season if they're still on the land but you know they're this is all very experimental still and they're, they're folks up at oregon state university um, led by Dave Weens and Damon Lesmeister, great biologists, and they have hundreds of these recording units out in, in the habitat trying to learn a little bit more about the vocal behavior. And, but, but this is a really big concern. And you know, a, a lot of the, the land managers and the wildlife biologists who do surveys are, are asking U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, you know, how do we survey for, you know, is there a protocol for surveying for barred owls? And, and do we need to, uh, you know, change the, the protocols for surveying for northern spotted owls? And, and I don't think that, you know, we really have the answer to that. And could, you get an, could you get an independent check on the methodology by uh, telemetry in some of these owls and then see your, if, if they actually uh, respond to calls uh, or there's, Maybe there's something about the behavior that uh, uh, can be found out by some independent means of uh, surveying. That's a that's a great question, um, and you probably could. the The trick is is when the owls don't call and they don't respond to calls and come into calls, then you know how do you catch them? Yeah. And, yeah, um, yeah. So, so, I, so I think that's the, that's the challenge. And, you know, it, it may be still possible. I think that the perception is that, you know, they're just not out there. We haven't heard them for a long time. And so, you know, trying to go out there and call them in and catch them so that you can do the radio telemetry is, is really tough. But, you know, there, there are lots of questions that this brings up is like, what are they doing out there? You know, are they just squeaking by or are they still breeding at some really low level? You know, do they still build nests? But the, the, you know, the, the belief is that they're probably not. And, 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 you know, there are other biologists. And in fact, while we were doing those first removals, there was, there was another biologist, Dave Weens. And I think this was part of his PhD work. And he did this work in, uh, in the Oregon coast range. Um, and they decided to, to, to do the work in the Oregon coast range because they thought that that was an area that, you know, where there were a few barred owls, but not that many barred owls, um, and that there were still spotted owls and they weren't that impacted yet so that they could actually go and see, you know, how are the spotted owls affected by barred owls. And so he was doing a non-removal study and he was running around the forest trying to map every one of the birds' territories, um, trying to figure out their fecundity, you know, how often were they breeding, how many young were they producing, what were they eating. So he was collecting all the pellets that they cough up and you know, it, the, the work that he did is just absolutely tremendous. It blows my mind how much he was able to get done um, in those, you know, really difficult forests to get around. And, um, and, and what he found was that, you know, every, every spotted owl territory that had a, a barred owl nesting within a certain distance didn't produce any young during the period of his study. So, you know, even those that are found to be breeding and calling and responding and that are mappable, you know, they're not able to actually produce young when they've got barred owls, you know, right on their doorstep. And, you know, exa exactly why it's, it's hard to say whether they get hassled, whether they're just being outcompeted, whether they can't get enough food because of the, you know, competition for resources. But, um, 
you know, but because of that data and, and because of the fact that they, you, you really can't find them, they're not calling, they're not in the activity center, you know, that biologists feel like they're probably not breeding. So what are they doing? We don't really know. But it is encouraging to know that they're at least still there, that there's at least still some there. Yeah. If you've just joined us, uh, we're talking about barred owls and spotted owls with Dr. Jack Dumbacher from the, he's the curator of ornithology and mammalogy at the uh, California Academy of Sciences. Uh, and we're getting uh, a real great rundown of the fascinating recent evolutionary history of uh, a couple of iconic forest birds. So, uh, we got a lot of places we could go from here. <laughs> it, I think you're still filling out though what's happened in the last few years with the uh, the removal project and some of the early findings from that. Right. Well, um, yeah, there's so many findings because once you get these specimens back in the museum, there's so many other things you can do with them. Um, so one of the things that really fascinated me and one of the reasons that, that I wanted to, to collect those first individuals was um, there was some hint that they were hybridizing. Um, that the barred owls were hybridizing with with northern spotted owls, and you know I was really interested in in you know what that might lead to, and there were some early studies using microsatellite loci, which is a just a genetic marker, and um, and you know suggesting that they really weren't hybridizing much, and that it probably wasn't a big deal, but when we got those first owls from the Siskiyou range, I I was in, in fact there were a few of them that looked that didn't look very much like the Eastern barred owls that I knew. And some of the patterning on the breast suggested to me that, you know, they, they looked a lot more like spotted owls. Um, and, and, and it, it made me uncomfortable, you know, some of those owls when they came into the collection, I was like, Ooh, you know, I, I would have felt uncomfortable pulling the trigger on that one. Um, you know, but they, they came in, we, we had them in the collection and we were able to do the genetics and they, they turned out that they were all barred owls and it looks like they're a hundred percent barred owl. So really the, the question that we had in looking at these odd owls was, you know, are they hybridizing and to what level? And, um, and then, you know, after, you know, when two species come together like that and they're probably very close relatives and, and we're separated by the, the great plain states where there aren't that many trees, but you know, they've come back together and they could either, you know, meld back together and become the same species by just interbreeding. Um, they, 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 they might, you know, clash and one species pushes out the other. They might be able to coexist and not interbreed. So it, it's this amazing, you know, evolutionary experiment that's kind of unfolding before our eyes. And so yeah. in order to, in order to get a grip on, you know, what is the fate of the northern spotted owl, um, there was a, a much larger range-wide removal study that was proposed a few years ago, and that that study is coming to a close right now. And the the and David Weens actually, you know, after he finished his PhD, he was chosen to lead that study. So he's been in, in charge of that. He's at Oregon State University and working with USGS, and. Um, and so they picked four different study areas, one in Washington, uh, two in Oregon, and then the last one is in the, the Hoopa tribe area um, in Northern California. And the control area is in the Willow Creek area that's been studied for a long time as well. And so each one of those had a, you know, a removal area and a control area. Um, and then they, they were trying to, to study you know, how the two owls are, are interacting. And, you know, they're still pulling all this data together, but it looks pretty darn clear 
that the spotted owls are in really deep trouble. And in those areas where the spotted owls have, or where the barred owls have been for a very long time, um, you know, most of the uh, the spotted owls have, have disappeared. So in Washington, there's very few spotted owls left. In Oregon, even, um, even in that area where David Weens worked, and he chose it because he thought the two owls were on equal footing, it turned out that the the barred owls outnumbered spotted owls, um, I want to say, you know, almost five to one. And and those numbers today are even more skewed. And, you know, the, the number of spotted owls left in that area um, is, you know, you can count them on one hand, I think, the number of territories. So it's it's really, it's not looking good. And so, you know, there's a lot of concern about you know, what's happening along the coast in Mendocino and Sonoma. And the wildlife biologists there who I've spoken with, you know, seem to think that the that it's mostly barred owls now and that there's very few spotted owls left. Um, and so that's a... With, with the caveat that we really don't have any way of knowing. Uh, I mean, it, we certainly don't hear spotted owls anymore. That's right. Uh, yeah. But we don't really know if they're there and have gone silent unless we and, have some other way of detecting their presence that's right that's right but yeah. you know e even the work that dave has done in oregon you know has shown that you know they're not they're not breeding very efficiently uh anymore and when we do have the you know when we can find them and we and we're able to locate the nests you know they're um they're not cranking out that many young and they're yeah. they're you know they're definitely being outcompeted by the by the barred owls in the same area. So there there may be more individuals, but to think that they would be doing better than the ones who, that we know about and that we're studying it seems like a stretch to most of the most folks. Is yeah. right? It is possible because we don't know. You know, we, there's a lot that we still don't know. Um, is there is is there any genetic evidence of hybridization? Uh, definitely. In fact, we've got several hybrids in the collection, um, and we've got several backcrosses too. So, so we know that they do hybridize. Um, they they do nest. Um, they do produce young. Those young are viable, and they can you know they and the, the most of the backcrosses we have would be an F one hybrid, which is a fifty fifty barred owl spotted owl hybrid that will mm -hmm. breed back with a barred owl. And so then you get an individual that's 75% barred owl and, um, and I guess 25% spotted owl. And, and the, the, interestingly, the hybrids look a lot like a spotted owl. There's a few ways that you can, that you can tell them apart, but they definitely, the, the first generation 50-50 hybrids, the so-called F1s, look to me more like a spotted owl than they do like a barred owl. But the, the facial mask is a little bit lighter. Um, and it, it is more spotty, but you can see a little bit of barring like in the upper breast and in the nape of the neck, you know, it's not as spotty. It's the spottiness kind of spreads out into a little bit of a barred kind of look and the, and the banding on the tail is much broader in the spotted or in the barred out than the spotted owl. So the banding is a little bit finer in spotted owls. So, any, you know. Any idea what happens to the song as they uh, hybridize? Oh, so that's another interesting thing because, um, you know, it's it, in owls, uh, the song is genetic. So it's, it's, they, they do a little bit of learning, but 
you know, it, it's mostly genetically controlled. So the hybrid does a song that's just right in between. And it's funny, one of the things that Lowell, Lowell used to describe, he said, you, you, you hear, when you hear a hybrid and you, you play at a Bardow call, it sounds like it's trying so hard to do a Bardow, but it just can't do it. And it's, you know, doing something in between. And then you play at the spotted owl call and it sounds like it's trying so hard to do a spotted owl call back to you and it just can't do it. And, and it really does sound like something halfway in between. It's the weirdest, it's the weirdest thing. And sorry, and so, sorry, this is just, this is just to cover. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, it, and, and, so, you know, so that's one of the questions. It's like, well, you know, maybe because they, they sing so weirdly it's hard for them to mate and that that might be the end of them or there might, you know, a lot of times hybrids are unfit for other reasons, but um, you know, where they've been found, they seem to do just well in the habitat and they fly around. And then the question is, well, you know, sometimes hybrids are infertile, but they've found cases of, you know, hybrids nesting with a, with a barred owl or hybrids nesting with a spotted owl and they're producing young and they're cranking out young and you know, the, the young eventually fly off. So and and you know it it's not it, it's relatively rare, but it's not it's not so rare that that I wouldn't expect to see some genetic impact of that. So I was a little bit surprised when we did when we did our and we did full genome scans because we were really interested in you know even if there was a little bit of hybridization early on in the invasion you know in the early 1900s that could linger in the genomes, and we really wanted to be able to detect that. So we 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 sequenced the entire genome of about 50 barred owls and we you know walked across it you know a thousand base pairs or 50,000 base pairs at a time um, to look for evidence of introgression we just didn't find it so so there so there are hybrids but we don't know what the heck is happening to them but they don't seem to be a major component you know in either population um, so are they they down in the five or ten percent uh or less uh, in terms of the number of owls that are around? I would, I would say less than 5%. Um, So, but let me, let me issue a caveat on that. So one of the reasons why folks were concerned about this was when, when owls were first, you know, appearing in Oregon, um, it looked like there were a lot of hybrids on the landscape. So people were really concerned about that. And that's why they did those initial studies. And, um, and I have colleagues who are working in the California spotted owl range um, around Lassen and Trinity and, and then down the Sierras to all the way to El Dorado. And it's interesting because when they in, encounter a barred owl or a, I should say a non-spotted owl, Strix owl, they're finding that hybrids are about 30% of that population. And, wow. And so... Yeah, so one of the hypotheses is is that you know when barred owls first move in, they're very rare and they have a hard time finding other barred owls to mate with, right? So, especially the males are going to not be choosy and mate with whoever they'll you know whoever they can find as a mate, and and so the hypothesis was that it was probably often, um, or, or uh, that it was I don't know I'm trying to I'm trying to remember which way this went now. But it was like, you know, one sex of, of the, you know, barred owls that were, that would be willing to mate with a, a spotted owl or a spotted owl would be willing to mate with a barred owl. But nonetheless, that, you know, about 30% of those, of those, you know, so-called barred owls on the habitat are probably hybrids. And then the real question is, is, you know, what happens to them? How come, 
you know, and if those numbers were, you know, similar in, you know, in the coast ranges when the barred owls first moved in, you know, how come we don't see some some impact of that genetically, and we don't seem to be. So, so I, those are some of the great questions that I'm really interested in. But those are very hard things to study, especially when you, you know, have populations that are that are small, like the barred owls in the Sierras. Um, there aren't that many, maybe. I, I think 70 on or on that order was what they were estimating when they started that removal study in, in Lassen southward. Oh yeah, that's not very many. So and you can only really study the genetics on the barred owl, right? Because you can't go and you can't do a removal on the spotted owl. Is that correct? Well, we can't do a removal, but many of the folks who have been studying spotted owls for a long time, when they ban them, they can take a feather and we can get the, oh, of course. we can get a genetic sample from that, or they can take a blood sample. So, so it is possible. And we do have in, in our study, in order to look for hybrids, we had to actually sequence the whole genome of, of many spotted owls too. And our sample size was much smaller because they're a little bit harder to get those samples. But um, because the other possibility, you know, as you can imagine, is that many of those genes are going into the spotted owl population. And, and I don't think that we have as, as, as good of a handle on that. Uh, that's, that still, I think, remains a possibility, but we don't have, you know, evidence that that's happening at a, at a huge pace. But the 20 or so spotted owls that we sequenced the whole genome of in the range where the two owls are overlapping. I don't think we found any evidence that there was any barred owl genes um, intergressing. So it doesn't seem to be a widespread, you know, huge problem. Um, but yet. it still is a possibility. Yeah, or maybe yet. And, you know, and, and it's all pretty recent. I mean, and, it's and, remarkable to me how rapidly all this is happening. And, you know, if, if it was the case that, uh, that they hybridize more when one species is rare, then you would expect that as the spotted owl becomes the rare species, they might start hybridizing again because they're not able to find, you know, appropriate mates of their own species. So they might be willing to mate with, you know, somebody of the other species. So, so that is, that's the possibility that, that, you know, many of us have been concerned about, but I don't, but again, I don't think that we've seen a lot of evidence that that's a big issue. But it could be, and you know, maybe it's something that we should be paying closer attention to. I, I was just going to ask um, um, a little bit about the evolutionary history of these birds. How much do we know about uh, how closely related, and when did they did they have a common ancestor, and how how long ago did they diverge? That kind of thing. Uh, how close together are they? Yeah, so there, you know, there, there's another, there's another Strix owl that you can find in Mexico, that's um, that's probably on, um, you know, equally related to the two, or maybe even more closely related to one of the two. And there's a there's a um, George Baraclo from the American Museum in New York has done a bit of work and has worked out a phylogeny for them, and he hasn't he hasn't published it yet. I think it was done by one of his graduate students and. We've asked him a little bit about it, and and he said, yeah, they're probably not sister species, but they're very close. And um, and and I'm trying to remember what he told me about how distantly related they are. Um, you know, you can kind of make some assumptions about about molecular evolutionary rates, and you know, try and throw some dates out there. But they're but they're not that closely related. They're you know, it's it's on the order of a few million years of separation. So it's it's not like you know they 
they were the same species in the in you know during the last glacial periods and they got separated by ice sheets and blah 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 it's much older than that it's you know it's it's several million years of of evolution that separates these two species from each other yeah that would that would make sense the great if the great plains really were the barrier to the uh, to to separate them the those developed you know something somewhere between 50 and 70 million years ago this raises questions uh, in my mind uh, that are kind of parallel to what we look at with Neanderthals and Homo sapiens with uh, maybe there's some genes in each that are uh, each species that are uh, that once they hybridize those genes could go into the uh, to, to the other population and actually give some advantage at some stage but uh, my guess is that uh, bird genetics is not that far along I don't really know but uh, it's interesting to speculate about no it's very interesting to speculate and in fact um, that so one of my great friends from graduate school is named Jeff Wall, and he's a geneticist and a statistician at um, University of California, San Francisco, and he studies that. And so one of the ways that I was able to get his help on some of these projects was that, you know, we were interested in how one species rolls over the other and hybridizes with it a little bit, just enough to pick up some genes that may be helpful and, and actually facilitate their invasion um and and that might have a genetic legacy in the remaining genomes of the of the individuals as they move through the 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 habitat and and so that was exactly the kind of system that we were looking for because he's interested in studying or he's interested in a lot of different things but he has done a bit of work on humans and neanderthals and he's done a lot of work you know looking at human populations around the globe and being able to tell you know where people are from based on on the genes and so with his help we thought we could really figure out you know how the owls have moved through the western united states and which genes they may have picked up and so when we did that genetic work we we used a, a spotted owl that was brought into captivity in marin county around the time that the very first barred owls were were found in marin county so we knew that it was a northern spotted owl um, but that it, there was no chance that it had any barred owl genes in it. And then we used barred owl genes from the eastern United States, that there was no chance that there were any spotted owl genes. So we felt like we had, you know, really good baseline data for the two species. And, you know, and then we thought, oh, now we're going to find all kinds of cool, interesting stuff. And our careers will be golden from here on out. And then, <laughs> and then we never found it. So... <laughs> yeah. I know the feeling. <laughs> but I love the way you're thinking because that's exactly what we were thinking and, and kind of what we were interested in. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so it, it sounds like we're not really seeing either, you know, two lines, evolutionary lines reconverging or even a, a speciation event here. No, it, it, it definitely looks like we're seeing the two species mostly, you know, staying distinct. And and that the uh, that the barred owl is is out competing the spotted owl pretty handedly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rapid evolutionary change happening right before our eyes. It it raises. I mean, there are so many questions. This whole story raises in my mind, and we we have uh, only maybe ten or fifteen minutes left. So 
we're not going to get to most of them, but one of them is the, you know, the concept of nativeness, because the barred owl is generally said to be non-native in California, and yet it was not introduced here either. That's right. And so the question is, you know, what what do you call a species like that, that arrives somewhere on its own? Uh, is it a native or not? And how long do you have to stay somewhere to be a native? Exactly. And so, and, and because of that, a lot of people have been asking the question, well, how did they get here? You know, did, did we do something to change the, you know, maybe we didn't help them directly. We didn't put them in our car and drive them over here, but you know, have we done other things? And so there's, there's kind of two hypotheses about how they made their way over here. And one is that they, that they, that they, as climate warmed and they were able to move northward, then they were able to catch the Southern boreal forest of Canada and make their way West through those forests. And, you know, formerly those would have been too cold and, you know, the Great Plains was a barrier. And so, you know, maybe our impact on climate and warming climates has facilitated their movement. Now, others have also, you know, looked across the Great Plains states and said, you know, actually, if you look in some of the Great Plains states all the way out to Colorado and, and beyond, there are little tiny forest patches. Many of those have been created by, you know, European settlers. And and they've been able to hopscotch their way across the Great Plains because of the things that we did to, you know, shore up the Dust Bowl and, and other things. And so, you know, that's another hypothesis. It, another hypothesis is that they just came across naturally. But then the question would be, why didn't they do this for, you know, several million years? Why, why now? Why is this happening now? And then, you know, an, another question is, you know, well, have we done something to the Western forests that allows the barred owls to outcompete the spotted owls? Because maybe, maybe before, there's no way that a barred owl could have really invaded those forests, that spotted owls could have held their own in, in those forests. We don't know the answer to that question because there's so few forests left that are big enough to, you know, and that are, you know, truly old growth that you could do that kind of experiment in. But that's, that's another possibility because the... Um, the, the barred owl is much more of a generalist and it can do, do well in scrubby habitat or even oak woodlands, you know? And, um, and so, you know, now that they're here, they're able to reproduce in a lot of the habitats that, that spotted owls couldn't have done well in and, and move through. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say whether humans have, have played a role and what role. And, and that's key for a lot of people, right? Cause a lot of people, you know, feel like, oh, if it's natural, we should just let it happen and um, let nature unfold on its own. And here's another thing that I would, that I would, that I would offer to you is that, you know, there's in, in Hawaii, for example, there's so little habitat left that, you know, there's a Hawaiian hawk and a Hawaiian crow, both of which are endangered. And if either one of them gets the upper hand, the crow will raid the hawk's nests or prevent them from, from breeding, but the hawks will directly depredate the crows, you know? And so what used to play out on a landscape so that no one species could win all the time is now being played out in little teeny tiny patches of land. And even a storm, you know, or a fire can end up choosing the victor, you know, in a very final kind of way. And so, you know, managers in Hawaii are left trying to manage those two species and, and keep them from one killing the other. And sometimes that means removing one or, 
you know, and, little miniature predator pits. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. And, and so, you know, the, the, the question that we're really faced with here is, is, is what does it mean? F what do we do about it? You know, right. is it, is it natural? Should we just let it happen? Or even if it is natural and it's happening, should we do what we can to preserve biological diversity? And how far are we willing to go? You know, it's one thing to, to go out to a yard and kill all of the dandelions and, you know, choose the other species that you want to replace it. And it's another thing to go out with a shotgun and shoot a bunch of owls. That's, you know, that's, that weighs heavy on your soul when you have to go out and remove a lot of big, charismatic, beautiful animals like that. And so, and it's a, you know, it's a question of logistics as well. I mean, are you prepared to do that forever uh, on the entire Pacific coast? It's just, it, to me, that just seems uh, like it's an unreasonable thing to even contemplate. Here's yeah. another, here's another philosophical take. Uh, if we have a, a barred owl, it's essentially filling the ecological niche of the spotted owl. And as far as we can tell from our studies is, uh, you know, part of the ecosystem and takes, takes the place of the spotted owl. Uh, should we just be happy that uh, the, the ecosystem still more or less uh, functioning with the, with a, with a predator that's uh, yeah. like, like the spotted owl? That's a really, yeah, exactly. Uh, why, why should we care which of these two species performs the same ecosystem function, I guess? Exactly. And if that was the case, I think it would be a completely different question. However, so people have been starting to do these kinds of studies. And, and now that they've, you know, literally collected thousands of owls in these bigger studies, they've looked through the diets of them and they realized that the diets are <laughs> very different. And, um, and there have been papers published showing that when the barred owls move in, you start to lose pygmy owls, you start to lose western screech owls, you start to lose, um, you know, the saw wet owls. So the smaller forest owls are disappearing. And, uh -oh. and, and yeah. those, are, those are things that, you know, we tend to have survey data for because when folks go out and do their northern spotted owl um, surveys, they collect data on the other owls that are calling. But, but what's interesting is, is that, you know, the, the barred owls often are feeding on the ground. They're feeding in streams. They're taking a lot of salamanders. So what we're seeing in the diets of many of these owls is that they're they're taking a lot of salamanders, and and maybe fifty percent of their diet is small mammals, and you know whereas like ninety five percent of the diet of the northern spotted owl is small mammals, and so the rest of that diet is coming from other things, and you know it's often birds. So they're raiding a lot of bird nests. Um, they're hunting birds at night, but they're also digging salamanders, frogs, and we do have some endangered salamanders and frogs in in some of these areas. So, so people are starting to um, to to start doing more now that this data, the the diet data, is coming out. People are starting to get worried, and they're like, "Oh, we've we've got to start doing you know these surveys of dicamptodon, the the the." The, the giant salamanders and um, yellow-legged frogs and red-legged frogs. and The barred owl is not performing the same ecosystem function as the spotted owl. Well, it, and it doesn't look like it is. But, you know, again, you know, how different is it? And, you know, one of the, one of the things is, is that the, the barred owls will pack onto the habitat, you know, in a much more dense way 
than the than spotted owls do. They you know that spotted owls have territories that are you know three times to five times larger than what a spotted owl or than what a barred owl needs. I hope I said that right. The 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 uh, spotted owls need much more land than the barred owls. So when barred owls become abundant, they just really pack in the habitat. And so it might not even be so much that the diet is terribly, terribly different, but it's just that there's so many more of them uh, that they're having a much bigger impact on the habitat than, than the spotted owls. So a, a lot more of the ecological uh, produced uh, primary productivity that ru runs up to the top predators is being uh, channeled through the barred owl than it was the spotted owl. Yeah. So... But, but, but those are all, but those are great questions. And, and so you can see, you know, where the biologists are pivoting now and trying to gather, you know, new information to answer those kinds of questions is, you know, how similar are they? How do they differ? You know, what other impacts are they having on the food, food web as a whole? Man, a lot to, yeah, this is great stuff. You know, we only have uh, basically three minutes left in the program. Dr. DeMacher, I want to really thank you for coming on. Uh, you've been listening to Dr. Jack Dumbacher. Uh, who is curator at the California Academy of Sciences, curator of ornithology and mammalogy, uh, talking about the barred owl on the Ecology Hour on KZYX. Archives of this program will be available after the show on our jukebox, jukebox.kzyx.org. And we'll have links for a lot of information on our website, which is ecologyhour.wordpress.com. Dr. Dumbacher, in the last two minutes, do you have a takeaway that you'd like to give our listeners? You know, I, I just would say that it's such an interesting case. It's, well, one, I'd say get out there and see northern spotted owls while you still can because they're magnificent birds and they're really wonderful to see. And they're really tame and they, they're just amazing. I, we have one living in our canyon and I, and I just love them. So go out and see them while you still can because they are wonderful. And two, I'd say you know, get involved because I think this is such an interesting case. And I think how the government and how all of us decides to handle it and what we decide is the right thing to do, which is not at all clear, I don't think yet to many of us, um, you know, I think it'll be really interesting how we decide to manage these, these two species in the Western United States. And I think, you know, the health of a lot of our forests does depend on it. So, um, so get, get involved and learn as much as you can about it and weigh in. Good advice. Well, thanks so much, Tim and Bob. This has been really fun. I've, been, I've really enjoyed it.